right. There's um, a book that was also turned into a movie. I've never seen it or read it, but it's called No Country for Old Men. I don't know if some of you may have heard of it. But in that movie, there's a particular character. He's a sheriff. And at one point, he says this, and I'm just going to read the dialogue. He says this. He said, I think if you were Satan and you were sitting around trying to think up something that would just bring the human race to its knees, what you'd probably come up with is narcotics. Maybe he did. I told that to somebody at breakfast the other morning, and they asked me if I believe in Satan. And I said, well, that ain't the point. And they said, I know, but do you? I had to think about that. You know, I guess as a boy, I did. Come the middle years, my belief, I reckon, had waned somewhat. But now I'm starting to lean back the other way. Satan explains a lot of things that otherwise you don't have no explanation for. Are Satan and demons real? I mean, let's be honest. If we were talking about this outside this moment in a church with a Bible in our hands, people would think we've lost our mind, right? It just sounds like kookiness. It sounds like a Hollywood script rather than reality. And yet, like the sheriff says, right, Satan explains a lot of things that otherwise don't have no explanation. There are some things that go on in this world that you cannot explain except for something transcendent. I was reading an article this week, and there was a controversial post uh, article in the Washington Post about a year and a half ago, a psychologist who, who came out and said, listen, I'm a scientist, but I got to tell you, there are some psychological instances where there is absolutely zero scientific explanation except for something transcendent that's going on. And frankly, when I read about these Christians talking about demon possession, that's what it sort of seems like to me. And that became a very controversial thing with all sorts of dialogue around it. But there's things that go on that don't seem to have any explanation except something beyond this material world. And that's where we're going to go this morning because the Bible speaks to that. And Jesus is going to have a power encounter with demons this morning that's very real. But what I'm particularly interested in is not so much getting all into the demon stuff but really looking at the responses to the various people in this story and how that relates to the way we respond. So with that said, I'm getting back into my sermon series this morning in the Gospel of Mark. We're going to be in Mark chapter 5 this morning. That's where we left off a couple weeks ago, looking at verses 1 to 20. I've entitled the sermon, Rabbi, Be Gone. And that's because two of the three responses we're going to see in this story are basically, Rabbi, Be Gone. And I wonder how many of us this morning, even some of us who are the perfect or the exemplar Christian, are really saying in our spirits, Jesus be gone. Let's take a look at this. We're in Mark chapter 1. Now, just, just to kind of get our bearings on where we left off a few weeks ago, verse 1 tells us, they, that would be Jesus and his disciples, went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. So let's just get our bearings. So go ahead, Greg. You can bring that up. So here's the map that we've been talking about. And Oh, I forgot my pointer. I left it downstairs. Um, but right here on the eastern shore, there's a town called Gergesa. So he was over here on the western shore. And then they go across the lake. You all remember a couple weeks ago? They went across the lake. And what happened? This massive storm, right? And then Jesus stands up. He's sleeping. 
And he gets up and says, you know, be quiet, be still. He rebukes the winds and the waves, and they stop dead, dead on a dime. And the disciples are like, who is this guy? Well, right after that episode, they get across the lake, and they land over here on the eastern side. Now, my, uh, my translation says uh, Gerasenes. Some of yours says Gadarenes, and some of yours says Gergeserenes. Different names, and that's because the ancient Greek manuscripts of Mark have different names in them, and we actually don't know which is the right one just by looking at those manuscripts. The names are so close, it would have been easy for a scribe to just miss it. Plus, these three te- there were three towns by these three names all near each other on that shore. But of the three, Gergesa is most likely the case because it's the modern day. Oh, well, actually, all right, thank you. So here's Capernaum. This is where he left from. Then went across the lake, and then he lands over here in Gergesa. Down here is Gadara. That's where Gadarenes would come from. And over here is, uh, is, is Gergesa. So you've got three different cities that are very similar names. The bottom line is it's most likely Gergesa because, as you can see, it's right here next to the lake, and it's got a steep embankment. Today there's a town called Kersey where Ger- ancient Gergesa was. This is a picture of Gergesi, and you can see, you know, the steep downslope into the water, rocky crags. It actually fits the description of our passage very well. So just have that in mind as we read about this very scary man that approaches Jesus and his disciples as they get out of the boat and they land on this piece of land. Verse 2 through 5, when Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him, and this man lived in the tombs. And no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. He'd often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and he broke the irons on his feet. And no one, no one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. This man is in a desperate condition, isn't he? And as I read this, I just got thinking about people that are drug addicted or people who are just at a, in a place in life where they, they're screaming out day and night. If not verbally, they're certainly doing it emotionally. So many people in this kind of state and condition, desperation. This man's been overwhelmed by an impure spirit. And not only that, but it's an evil spirit. We can see that right off the bat in verse 2 in a very, I think you wouldn't catch in the English. But it says that when Jesus got out of the boat, this man came from the tombs to meet him. The verb there for meet him is a really unusual word. It's not the normal word for two people meeting each other. It's actually the word that's usually used when two, two armies meet on the battlefield. It's a very unusual verb. So what it's telling you right there in the Greek in verse 2 is, this man is not coming as the welcome wagon to greet Jesus to the region. This is a hostile approach as he runs towards Jesus. Now this whole scene would make everyone uncomfortable especially Jewish readers. Howard Hendricks, in a sermon on this passage, talked about there are four ways that demons affect human beings. Number one, they're, they're unclean and filthy, and so that this man is unclean and filthy. They isolate people. They give them supernatural strength, and they, and they always cause self-destruction. All four of these characteristics we're seeing in this man. That's what this demon is doing to this man. He's destroying this man. The commentators mention that what demons want to do is they want to erase the image of God off of human beings. 
And the reason they want to do that is because we glorify God the most when we bear his image. We were given his image on the earth to glorify him and represent him on the earth. And when that image, sin defaces that image. And with this man, the image of God, the image of God in him as a, as a man with dignity has been completely stripped away. All of his humanity is gone. He's more like a beast. On top of that, in the Gospel of Luke, when it tells the story, it says that he was naked. Again, like a beast. And not only that, but this area that he landed in, it's Gentile area. This man most likely is a Gentile. He's not even a Jew. And we're going to read about pigs later on. (laughs) So for a Jew, this is like nightmare city. This is the last place on earth a Jew would want to be. Nothing is good. And he's in the tombs, which is unclean to Jews. That's just everything is terrible here. This person is in an absolutely horrendous, horrendous, horrendous situation. So what are the townspeople trying to do? Well, they try to to deal with him. How do they do that? They try to bind him. And actually, again, the verbs here are so, they're so much more graphical than the English can tell. It says he broke them apart. Oh, my goodness. The Greek word there is, is is to destroy into smithereens. It's to annihilate. It's like, boom, all these little pieces everywhere. This is overwhelming strength. The townspeople, their reaction is, this is a dangerous man. We got to put him away. We, we, they, that's the only way they know how to deal with him. We got to somehow lock him up. Stay away from dangerous people. We don't want dangerous people around us. But their efforts to deal with this evil with chains and shackles is pointless and useless. Which really leads us to the first lesson, I think, for this morning. You can't fix inner issues with outer controls. This man is in this state. Not because he's got physical issues with the use of his arms and his legs. There is something that has filled him that is a power beyond human control. Evil has an influence over us. To the level that we open up our heart to it. To the level that we come into agreement with it. When pornography comes in front of me and I decide to look at it, I'm making agreement with evil. That's a pathway for influence. When I'm angry with somebody and bitterness is staring me in the face and I agree with it, Ephesians 4 says, I'm now giving a foothold to the enemy. These are all places where evil can influence us. And when that happens, the fix is not, well, just try not to be bitter. And the fix is really not, well, let's just put some sort of software control on the computer, although that's not a bad step. But at the end of the day, is it solving the issue? Why am I choosing porn? Why am I, why am I choosing bitterness? Because there's something deeper that chains and shackles can't deal with and accountability software can't fix. There's a root that's deeper. We don't know this man's story. But but in some way, access through evil has entered into this man's life. And the only solution is for whatever's deep inside this man to come out and then for that emptiness to get filled with something else. And the same is true with us. 
Only God knows where all of us are here this morning. I don't. Where are we? What are we filled with this morning? What's in our hearts? This man's in a terrible place. The townspeople can't help him, but help is on the way. Verse 6. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran, as we saw before, and he fell on his knees in front of him. And he shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? In God's name, don't torture me. For, God had, for Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you impure spirit. And then Jesus asked him, What is your name? My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside, and the demons begged Jesus, send us out among the pigs, allow us to go into them. And he gave them permission. And the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs, and the herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. What a moment. I, again, I wish we could picture this. I hope we can get this in our mind. Here's Jesus with this man, and picture him running towards him. He's naked. He's filthy. He's, he's screaming at the top of his lungs. Remember, who's with Jesus? Jesus isn't alone. And if you remember, it was Jesus and other boats. My guess is Jesus, disciples, and, and there's other people. There's quite a contingency. This guy, out of control, running after Jesus, I don't know about you, but I'd be like, we got to get out of here. Get in the boat, right? But Jesus just stands right there. And a guy comes running, trying to intimidate him. But when he gets to Jesus, what does he do? Boom! He, ha he has to bow down. Why? Because Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And his demon has no authority there in front of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Boom! On his face. Now, what's interesting, though, now this demon, he's in, he knows he's in a, this is not good. This is why I'm coming after him. I've had my, my way in this place, and now there's someone here who could do me damage. So he's coming after him. And Jesus says, come out of him. But then the demon challenges Jesus. Look, he says at seven, what do you want with me? In the Greek, that's an idiom. That's a well-known idiom. It, it, it just says, what, you, and me. It's a very simple little idiom. And what it basically means is mind your own business. It means, hey, I'm in my place. You go to yours. It's, this idiom was usually used when two people had two different agendas. And both agendas can't work, friends. One's got, and I'm, all, I'm good here. You go. That's what this idiom meant. He's basically challenging Jesus. And then the second thing, he names him Jesus, son of the most high God. He knows who he is. The demons know. They just don't, they don't, they don't submit, but they know. You can know all about God. He doesn't care if you know about him. What he cares about is are you submitted to him? Jesus, son of the most high God, in the ancient world, the way one spirit would gain control over another was by naming it. By naming it, somehow it was like you've chained it. So what this demon is doing, first of all, by running, trying to intimidate. Then he's saying, hey, mind your own business. Then he's saying, I've got you. 
And then in God's name, don't torture me. Now, NIV, unfortunately, I don't like the translation here. Most of your translations have something like, I implore you or I adjure you. That's the actual verb that's there. I adjure you in God's name as if you're less than God. So I'm going to go to a higher God and I'm going to command you. I adjure you as a command. It's actually, it was actually a way to place a curse on someone. That if they don't do what you adjure them to do, now they're under a curse. He's trying to place, the demon's trying to place Jesus under a curse by a higher God. This is a challenge. He is trying to intimidate Jesus because Jesus is trying to eradicate, is eradicating him. So then Jesus asks him, what is your name? Now, Jesus, it's the only time in the Gospels he ever asks a demon to name itself. Only time. Why? We don't know. The best guess I saw in the commentaries was one person said, well, Jesus knows what he's dealing with, but all these dozens of people that are with him don't know what he's dealing with. And they're going to understand the magnitude of what they're about to see. That may be right. I don't know. He names him. What is your name? My name is Legion, for we are many. A legion is a Roman legion. A Roman legion was 6,000 soldiers. Now, that doesn't mean there were 6,000 demons. What it means is there are thousands of demons. This is an uncanny situation. And immediately the disciples, I mean, everyone behind Jesus would have taken a couple steps back right there. Wow. Now, it's interesting Back in chapter 1, I know that was a few months ago, Jesus was teaching in a synagogue. And if you remember, there was a man sitting in the synagogue, a nice churchgoer, just like us, who's demon-possessed. And Jesus went over there and freed the man of his demon. One demon. Later in the go- other places in the gospel, we read about Mary Magdalene. You might remember, it says that Jesus exercised seven demons out of her. And now you've got a guy with thousands of demons. What does that tell us? There's different levels of demonization. The Greek word is just demonized. We don't know about possession as a controversial thing. But the bottom line is, the, is control and influence. There's different levels of influence and control that demons can have on human beings. Again, the power is agreement. The power is, yes, I'm with this. I'm going with this. This lie or whatever it might be. Or this fleshly thing that I give myself over to. And so there's different levels. This man has got it as as high as you can possibly get it. And he does not want to go easily. And it's interesting, verse 10. Did you notice the change in in person? He, He begged Jesus not to send them out of the pigs. You can see this man is just in conflict. And if you've ever met someone who's deep in sin... They're just in conflict and confusion, and nothing's clear. Then they look over, and they see some pigs feeding on the nearby hillside. I mean, look at those cute little pigs. Who doesn't love pigs, right? Look at the little smile, right? I mean, their cute little ears and tail. I mean, come on, these poor pigs. Send us into the pigs. What's that all about? What do you mean send us into the pigs? Oh, man, this is hocus pocus, man. Well, what it appears to be is that demons want to be hosted in some way, materially. 
I don't understand all the ins and outs of that. Scripture doesn't really give it to us in great detail. But in some way, they want some kind of physical host. And what's interesting here, too, is even if you notice in what they said to Jesus, they said, do not send us out of this region. That was back in, um, oh, what verse is it? How come I'm not finding it? Oh, verse 10. Yeah. Begged them not to send them out of the area. What's that all about? Why that area? So there seems to be something about places and things that can have higher levels of bondage to demonics than other places and things. Again, I don't understand all that. And we have to be really careful we don't go overboard with that. I read one story about a particular group that got really into spiritual things and Satan and constantly seeing Satan and everything. And they became convinced in the house they were in that there were demons in the chandelier. And it was a crystal chandelier and they took it down and went in the backyard and they took a baseball bat and they smashed it. And then they, they, they took the different pieces and planted them all over the city. Now, I don't know. I'll be honest with you, I, I, gotta, I wonder about that. Is that taking it too far? I don't know. But on the other hand, let's not underestimate the reality of demons and the reality of evil in the world. I think we can get great advice from C.S. Lewis in his wonderful book. If you've never read it, The Screw Tape Letters, it's a really, really powerful book. He says this, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One, he says, is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased with both errors and hail a materialist who denies anything beyond this world just as much as a magician with the same delight. So let's not go overboard one or the other. The bottom line is focus on Jesus. (laughs) Focus on Jesus. But be aware that there is demon influence about us. And there is evil in the world. I mean, anyone who can look at this world and not think there's something beyond just materialistic thing, I I don't understand, to be honest with you. There is evil in the world. So they go into these pigs, and and he gives them permission. And it went out and it went into the pigs, and they go down, all 2,000 of them, 2,000 of them. That is a lot of pigs. I've never heard, I, I mean, I, I've been to farms and I've heard, you know, pigs squealing or whatever they do, right? But imagine when they're filled with a demon, what they sound like, or whatever, right? And there'd be 2,000 of them going like that. I mean, whoa, that must have been an awful sound. And then they don't act like pigs. Pigs, all of a sudden, they all, you know, in unison, go to the, down into the lake. So just picture that. Now, an an interesting thing here is this. What's up with them going into the lake? In the Gospel of Luke, when this story is told, it's a little different. Because what what, what the demons say to Jesus is, do not send us into the abyss. What in the world is the abyss? It's talked about twice in Scripture. And here's, I know you gotta back up a little, Greg, but back in Jude chapter one, We read this, and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling in submission to God, okay, he's kept them in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. And then 2 Peter 2 describes it as well. There is a place where some demons are being held, 
And he's saying here, remember when he came to Jesus, don't, are you going to torture me? They don't want to be sent to the abyss, to this place. They want to continue to be in the world influencing and, and having their way until that final great day of judgment when Jesus makes all things right. Don't send us to the abyss. Well, here's what's interesting. So they're thinking the pigs are safe. Send us into the pigs. They go into the pigs. Where do the pigs go? Into the lake, into the Sea of Galilee. In the ancient world, it was a common belief that the lake and the sea was, guess what? The place of the abyss. And here's what is ironic. What we see with this first begging, the demon begging, he is, the demons are trying to control Jesus. Get Jesus to do what they want. And what they don't want is to go in the abyss. But where do they end up? In the abyss. So even when we try to control God, when we try to manipulate God, I, I, it's going to be this way, God. And, our, our, and whatever attitude we have towards God, anytime we, we, we try to manipulate and control, we never get what we want. We're fighting against the very will of God. They end up in the very thing that they were controlling and manipulating Jesus to not go to. Their control and manipulation fails. It always does. So that's interesting. But remember, there are, these pigs are not just here on vacation by themselves. They've got people who own them, right? There's pig herders right there. And they're like, what, what the, are you kidding me? Watch, okay, you're, you're, all your cars go flying down, right? Are you kidding me? What the heck? So what do they do? How do they respond? Let's look. Verse 14. Those tending the pigs ran off, and they reported this in the town and the countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. And when they came to Jesus, they saw two things. Number one, they saw the man who had been possessed, that crazy naked running guy by the legion of demons, and he's sitting there dressed, his humanity restored. Don't miss that. Sitting there dressed and in his right mind like an image-bearing human being, giving glory to God by simply being a human being that's aligned with God. And they were afraid. Why would they be afraid? What have they been trying to do for decades or however long with this guy? Right? They couldn't control him. And all of a sudden, like that, he's better? What kind of power is in our presence? But that's not their primary concern. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. I don't know about you, but I remember as a new Christian reading the, the gospel, and I had never read the Bible before. The church I had grown up in kind of discouraged reading the Bible. So then I'm reading the Bible for the first time, and I remember reading this going, what? Why would they send Jesus away? I mean, isn't he the guy that, like, is awesome? Look at what he just did. Why in the world would you send Jesus away? I never understood that. I'd be like, come on, fix everything. Right? Am I missing something here? Well, here's what's interesting. In the Greek language, when you want to accent, they didn't have Microsoft Word, bold, 80 point or something like that, right? You want to bold something, you have a few options. Number one is repetition. Always look for repetition when you're reading a Bible passage. Repetition is very important, like begged three times in this passage, which we'll talk about in a minute. Repetition is important, but another way you can highlight is the way you write the sentence. 
And this verse 16 in the Greek is highly unusual. And the way it's written is the very last phrase kind of hangs by itself at the end. It's in the place of emphasis. And that's why, like in my NIV version, I don't know if you have it, but it says it's like dash and told about the pigs as well. That's the NIV's way of trying to help you understand that that's the highlighted phrase. What are these herders most concerned about? Are they psyched that this man is now better? What are they focused on? My pigs! Listen, a huge herd was like 150 to 200 pigs. That was considered a huge herd. 2,000 pigs. You guys, this is a fortune. Just watch your... Maybe you do or do not. Million dollar 401k down to zero in one day. I mean, this is painful. All they know is they're living their existence. Yeah, there's some evil among them, but they've got that contained. They're, they're prospering. Everything's just fine. Jesus, leave because we kind of like the status quo. We like our pond the way it is. Don't you bring a river in here, a powerful river that's going to change everything. That's how I think, that's what my opinion on why they want him to leave. One, he's got a power they can't control. And they've already been dealing with that with this crazy man. But, I, but, but the point of emphasis by the gospel writer is the pigs. Jesus is going to disturb their status quo. And we don't like our status quo disturbed, thank you very much. What they basically say to Jesus is, Jesus, be gone. And look, look at what verse 17 says, right? They began to plead with Jesus. The word there for plead is the same word in the Greek as the demon begging him. And both of them are begging the same thing. Jesus, be gone. Don't upset our status quo. Don't make me settle for your will. No, no, no. Be gone. How many of us are in that place this morning? You're saying, well, I, w- I wouldn't be a church if I'm saying Jesus be gone. How many of us are open to God totally changing our status quo today? What if he calls you to bring someone into your home you, want, you would never want in your home? And it's his will. Would, would you be open to that? Would I be open to that? Or would I say, Jesus be gone? My life is hard enough. And I'm doing all I can right now. I I like this nice little place I've got. It's working for me. We can say Jesus be gone without having demon infesting, ranting ravings. The nice Christian life can be another way of saying to Jesus, Jesus, be gone. Leave me alone in my nice little Christian, homogenous, everything just the way I like it world. God help us. Jesus, be gone. Wow, what a thing to say to the living God. Well, there's one more response. Verse 18. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. There it is the third time. That key verb, parakaleo, the third time. Jesus didn't let him. Now, that's interesting. Just stop there. Think about this for a minute. Parents. Let's be honest. Who do we normally say yes to? The kid who's obeying and doing the right things, right? Whether it's right or wrong, we have a tendency. Let's be honest. And the kid who's constantly doing wrong. 
Can I have this? No. Well, once you start doing your chores and doing, yeah, you know. Three people ask Jesus for something. Well, the demons ask, and he says what? Yes, go into the pigs. Of course, they doesn't realize, they don't realize they're really getting what they don't want. And then the townspeople say, Jesus, leave. And Jesus says, yes, he get, he's getting into the boat. He's leaving. And then the one who's aligned with him asks him for something. And what does he say? No. There's a lesson there. How many of us are frustrated with the no's? Right? He says no. And why does Jesus say no? He says, go home to your own people. And tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Now, wait a minute. I hate when Jesus is inconsistent. Seriously. Because I know it's been a little while, so let me refresh your memory. There have been two other instances in the first four chapters. Maybe, see if you can figure out where I'm going here. Two other instances where Jesus delivered somebody, and then what's the very next thing he tells them? Don't tell anybody. And now this guy, he says, tell everybody. What is going on? How do we know which is right or what? Well, here's the point. I like, actually, let me just give you the words in a commentator kind of summarize, and I liked what he said here. He said for Jesus himself to continue preaching in the Gerasene country was clearly now impossible. Therefore, in refusing the man's request to leave with him, Jesus was ensuring a continuity of witness in a needy area. When the leper, back in chapter 1, had been healed, there were already unmanageable crowds milling around Jesus for healing and talking about him. There was no need to spread the news any further. Such a good point. You've got to understand the situation you're in. Sometimes you share and sometimes you don't. That's where you've got to let the Holy Spirit guide you. Now, here's the thing that I haven't said to you yet. Well, I, I mentioned it earlier. This is Gentile territory. This is the first man that Jesus says, I'm appointing you to go and witness. Go tell people about me. Up until now, the disciples are just hanging with him. He hasn't sent them out yet. The very first person sent by Jesus is who? A formerly demon-possessed Gentile. That's an interesting thing. I had never picked up on before either. What does that tell us? God can use anybody, guys. And more than that, he will usually use the most unlikely person like you and me to do his work. This idea that we have to be Billy Graham or whatever is such a lie. It binds us up. We have the privilege of telling people just, here's what God's done for me. That's all he needs to say. Here's what God, has God done anything for any of us? Do we have things to tell people? This is what God's done for me? And that's what he does, right? Verse 20, finally. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis, that's the region of the 10 cities where he lives, how much Jesus had done for him. And all the people were amazed. There was fruit from it. There was fruit from it. I have up here two things. I've got, again, the, uh, the invitation for the Easter services. I actually brought them upstairs. There's some downstairs, but I have a b- bunch up here. And I'm going to ask, challenge you to think about giving it to somebody. And then I've got here, how to prepare your personal testimony. Some of you have never really thought about, how do I share my story of how God changed my life? This is just a simple one-page 
handout that will help you work on creating a testimony that you can share confidently with people. It's simple tools, but here's the bottom line. Jesus doesn't train this guy before he sends him, does he? There's nothing wrong with training. That's why I'm making these available. But this guy, just he's got no training. He's not even a Jew. He doesn't understand the big story of all that God's doing. He only has one thing. I was blind and now I see. Let me tell you about it. That's all he's got. And the world and the region's amazed. <laughs> he, God uses him. And so all of us have an opportunity to be used by God simply by sharing our story. Simply, are we willing? And if we're not, that's another way of saying what? Rabbi, be gone. Why are we here? Why are we here? Why, why am I standing here alive? Is it just to have a nice earthly existence? Isn't there something bigger than this? Isn't there something that so far overshadows this that I'll give everything here to to, to live for that kingdom? Are we ready and even eager to share the story? And if not, why not? Maybe it's a personality thing. I don't know. But each one of us is gifted uniquely. We're not all evangelists like Brett Carlson and the class he's doing. It's not too late to jump in if you want to jump into that class, but you don't have to be an evangelist like Brett. Just whatever way God has gifted you with a spiritual gift, just use that. And when people ask you about it, you just point to Jesus. It's, it's not rocket science. It's really a heart issue more than anything else. And the need is so great. My goodness, do we really believe and understand? I was reading one story. Oh, man, it was a... Uh, psychologist, Madeline Levine, and she's written a book. And she was talking about the, the young women that she counsels. For 25 years, she's been counseling teenage girls. And she was saying in recent years, she's gotten so distressed because these girls have everything. They've got everything you could ask for, and yet they are miserable and they're filled with anger. And she's trying to understand why it's getting worse. And as an example, she talked about this one 15-year-old girl who came to visit her on a Friday, last appointment of the day. And this girl sat down, and she's just filled with anger. And as she's talking to this girl, she noticed she had long sleeves on, and so she, could, she had suspicions. And then she said, would you please pull up your sleeves? And when the 15-year-old girl, this girl, popular girl, pretty, talented, all sorts of, you know, great, I mean, she's got everything When she lifted up her sleeves, she had empty, scrawled with a razor on her forearm. And this is what Levine had to say about that. I tried to imagine how intensely unhappy my young patient must have felt to cut her distress into her flesh. The most common thing I hear in my office from the kids is, I'm fake. The surface, family life, always looks good. The lawns are perfectly manicured. The houses are beautiful. But then when you get to what's going on beneath these kids' T-shirts, there's not much happening inside. Listen, guys, listen to me. There's a lot of emptiness in this world. She's not the only one. And empty places get filled with something. And when pornography is right in front of your face and you're empty, that looks really good. And when bitter and anger at the kid who 
bullied me on social media is right in your face. And you're empty. That looks awfully good. What people need to know is all those things are doing is making them even more empty because they weren't built for that. We were built to be displays of the glory of God. And we do that when we bear his image, the image of Jesus Christ. And that's why salvation is not about saying yes to a prayer and I'm going to heaven when I die. No! Salvation is about growing into the image of Jesus Christ. And sanctification is part of the salvation. That's part of what God's doing. Salvation is God's work of redeeming and restoring his image in us. Discipleship isn't optional. The whole point of calling us to himself is to restore the image in us. And as he does, and we look more and more like him, and his joy and his peace fill us, we can't help but tell people, come to let you. I want you to be filled with the same thing I've been filled with. John 7, Jesus says, those who believe in me will be streams of living water will flow up from within them. And by that, he was talking about the Spirit of God. When you say yes to Jesus, he puts the Spirit of God in you. And then it's up to us to be aligned with the Spirit. And when we are, we start looking like Jesus. And people will say, what's up with that? And if that's not happening, then I'm saying yes to something that's not Jesus. If, I, if that's not happening, if people aren't seeing the image of God, I'm saying yes to something besides the Spirit of God. And it might be a religious spirit. It could be worldliness. But meanwhile, we've got a world of 15-year-old girls riding empty with razors, waiting for someone to come and say, there's someone who wants to fill you with life. His name is Jesus. He's changed my life. He can change yours. Will we say yes, or are we going to say, Jesus, Rabbi, be gone. My life is just too full. I'm sorry. I'm not available. Why are we here? I got this phrase, Rabbi, be gone, from a poem by a guy named John Oxenham, about a 100-year-old poem. It's very convicting. I'm going to end with this. When I'm done reading this, I'm just going to have a moment of quiet before I close this. What are we aligning our hearts with this morning, church? Are we filled with the fullness of the Spirit? Rabbi, be gone. Thy powers bring loss to us and ours. Our ways are not as thine. Thou lovest men, we swine. Oh, get you hence, omnipotence, and take this fool of thine, his soul? What care we for his soul? What good to us that thou hast made him whole, since we've lost our swine? And Christ went, sadly. He had wrought for them a sign of love and hope and tenderness divine. They wanted swine. Christ stands Without your door and gently knocks, but if your gold or swine the entrance blocks, he forces no man's hold, he will depart and leave you to the treasures of your heart. Heavenly Father, guilt is a terrible motivation. We do not want to leave this place Motivated to share out of guilt. We want to be like this man. 
realizing what we've been saved from and being so blown away that our only desire is to be with you. And out of the fullness and the richness of your love overflowing into our hearts, that's the motivation. That's what I pray for our church, Lord. Empty out anything that's not of you in this church, be it demonic or worldly. And fill us with your spirit. Fill us with your joy. Fill us with your peace. Fill us with visions of just how great you are. Like the psalmist says, great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. Lord, may that be the song of our heart. And out of that overflow, may you use us to an empty world and point Point the lost to where they can be filled with living water. Father, do this, I pray. Help us to surrender the places where we're saying, Rabbi, be gone. I surrender all. I surrender all. All to Him, my precious Savior, 